genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. Like, I just love trying to understand somebody's motivations, trying to understand what they're trying to do. Like, it's a puzzle to be figured out for me, and people are just fascinating, complex puzzles. and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al. I'm a business owner. And we are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. Yeah, I realize that's 64 times we've said that now. Isn't that weird? <laughs> not sure we have actually anyway so there's plenty of things going on here at truthy towers you're probably going to see lots of projects coming out from us at the moment we've been invited to a few more shows which is very mm. exciting so if you're in the uk uh then in 2024 you've got the chance we'll be to come everywhere and, yeah you've got a chance to come <laughs> and meet us meet and greet all that kind of thing we only charge 20 pound per photo uh we've got a keynote potentially coming up we've got lots and lots of content and of course the amazing guests we've still got about 20 more guests to bring you by the yeah. end of the year really we're um yeah. we've got so much stuff to bring you all we're saying is that you're probably going to see us around quite a lot over the next few weeks. Yes, you are. And I guess a quick reminder, really, for anyone listening who wants to create an amazing workplace culture, which I'd imagine you do. Otherwise, why would you be listening? Or maybe you're wondering why your workplace culture isn't amazing. That could be why you're listening. But if you are one of those people who are listening, who wants to create an amazing workplace culture, we have created a simple and very powerful three-part process for building a phenomenal workplace culture. It is, of course, based on our RX7 model, which regular listeners will have heard of, I'm sure. At the moment, it is invite only, which is why we're only really talking about it on the podcast or to people we know who really care about people and culture. So if you are a business owner looking to grow in 2024 or perhaps a leader looking to build the world's greatest team, maybe you're eyeing up an exit, perhaps looking for that money, money and then get get in touch. (laughs) 
get your bag yeah get in touch we'll send you an application for the rx7 it will help you create awesome workplace cultures improve employee well-being retain the very best of talent ultimately give you the data insights you need to sell your business in 2024 so there you go that's enough said on that i'm returning to my cup of tea yeah well said lee um You'll notice it's not well publicized for a very specific reason because we are only after a very specific type of person. Um, so, uh, yeah, if, if this sounds like it's up your street, drop us an email and we'll send you a link to the application form. Okay, so the bad news today is you're not going to hear much of us, really, because the good news is that we've got Twitter's number one business advisor on the pod today. If you've seen any tweets or exes it's just not the same you can't call it eggs. come on Elon, if you're listening like if you see mead girls and she's like fetch stop saying fetch fetch it's not going to catch on um, right it's not no i haven't it's not going to catch but... on elon like go oh, man it's twitter sorry elon she says but, the non-twitter users <clears throat> in the room i only on. use it to, to stalk people and that's how i found michael because um basically if you've ever seen any tweets like i have around about business or leadership or anything like that there's a very good chance you have seen our guest today because he's involved in almost every discussion he's got nearly two hundred thousand followers i think it's 196 point seven thousand followers at the moment he employs over a thousand people across all of his organizations he has grown for example his family-owned firework company alamo fireworks he's grown it to the largest firework company in texas he's also founded jura software which is one of san antonio's largest companies he's the genius behind scale path you've probably seen that on twitter and you've seen it online he's also been geek of the year he's been man of the year he's probably likely twitterer of the year he's one of my personal heroes i'm delighted to welcome michael gerd to the podcast the first question i had to ask him was why does everyone seem to turn to him on twitter for advice uh i definitely feel like i am turning into kind of the internet's uh weird business uncle you know that uncle that you have that your mom can't really explain what he does all day but every time there's like a business question it's like go ask uncle michael like i think i think that tends to be my persona i think also on social media i'm i'm infamous for being just like overwhelmingly positive uh, which is a strategy of mine. It's how I live my life and it's how I try to do things on social media for it. And it's intentional. Uh, in terms of what I do every day, uh, I spend the majority of my time creating, owning, and supporting businesses. Um, I'm a total business nerd. That's what I love to do ever since I was a kid. That's it's the most fun thing I can think about is being entrepreneurial. Uh, and so today I have about a dozen companies um, in varying states of growth, everything from Right now, two people in a slide deck all the way up to companies with a couple hundred people. And um, and that's what I do. I create, incubate and grow companies. Regular listeners will know that we are fascinated by how the generational differences are playing out in the workplace. Michael is a Gen Xer whose team spans multiple generations. I wanted to find out what he thought separated Gen Xs at work and other generations. There's a bunch of things, you know, uh, there's unique things about Gen X and primarily the the idea of generational theory, and I'm a total dilettante in this, but I've read enough to talk about it on Twitter. Uh, but the idea of generational theory is the way generations and groups of people are shaped is totally dependent upon when technology showed up. And for most of us as Gen X, who were born 1965 to 1980 here in the United States, so that makes the youngest of us kind of in the 43 years old. And I'm 48, so I'm like dead center, like case study Gen X right here. That really impacts your lifelong worldview. So for example, you know, most of us grew up with baby boomer parents, either old baby boomers or greatest generation parents who were at work all the time. And were also very difficult 
to connect with, right? Not from a, just like interpersonal sense, but it's like four o'clock school has ended. You're at home. You're by yourself as a Gen X because your parents are still at work and you're taking care of yourself. That it's not easy to find your parents. You, you know, you get locked out of the house where well, you're going to sit outside of the house until somebody comes home with a key to let you in. And that creates a very different set of approaches to life versus say somebody who's born more recently when cell phones are ubiquitous, right? Like my kids can instantly reach me any time of the day, which causes them to have a totally different worldview, for example, than we do as Gen X who grew up when it's like, well, maybe send your parents a fax and they'll get it later. Like that just totally, that totally changes and impacts your worldview. And if you think about all of technology from television to YouTube and all that kind of stuff, it changes the way young people and then afterwards as adults view the world and have perspective. So there's a ton of Gen X things, but that first one you can think about is Gen X have this like huge perspective of like, I'm on an island by myself. I have to be self-reliant because that's what they were taught as kids. There wasn't immediate access to all these different resources like kids have today. So you'll see us in the workplace do weird stuff like that. We want to be very independent as Gen X just because of the way technology affected us when we grew up. But the factors that affect the different generations is not just about technology, it's about integrity. One of the biggest complaints these on these days online about the younger generations is that they're a little bit flaky. Now, again, this is not my words. This is what you'll see on Reddit, Twitter, anyone who's tweeting about Gen Z, that, that word often comes up. And whether that's true or not, it is interesting to understand why older generations think of this about the younger generation. I'm a Gen Xer too, so Michael thinks it's down to not really having much choice about the matter. You're going to know who all the people that you can trust are and that you're going to have relationships to those people in your neighborhood. You're going to be like, okay, well, I know I can always go to uh, Aunt Jill or I can go to this old guy. He's, he's always at home and I know he's trustworthy, right? And those relationships and the trust of those people is going to be very important. And you're going to want them to trust you. And the way you get them to trust you is to do what you say, have high integrity and place value on consistency around following up and that, that sort of thing. Right. So, so you're like, Michael, what are these core values? They're not special. I'm just yet another Gen X who thinks the exact same way because of what happened when I was 11. It's just, anyway, this is super fun. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of doing those things, I think I hopefully just answer the question of, well, what does it take? Like trust is built up over a lifetime and destroyed in a moment. Like that's very much exactly true um, with these sort of things. And, you know, I, I think as I've gotten older, I understand that there's a lot of people in the world. And, you know, once you lose that trust, you generally have to go try to rebuild from fresh someplace else or do the hard work to try to rebuild it, which people that are the closest relationships in my life, I would definitely do that. And one of the ideas of generational theory is like each generation is a pendulum, like it swings back and forth, right? And if like, say, for example, if you're part of a generation where your parents were helicoptering, right, which is what a lot of younger millennials experience through baby boomers and still have baby boomers trying to control their lives, uh, even as adults, you know, you you're, you are going to do exactly the opposite as a parent, right? And like, let's say, or for example, let's say that you had a parent that was very distant, um, and was very reserved and cold to you. Well, what are you going to do when you're a parent? you know, the child becomes a parent, they're going to do the exact opposite. So to some extent I give like my kids are Gen Z, uh, they're 14 and 17. So they're kind of young Gen Z's at this point. Um, and they're gonna, you know, they're gonna act in a certain way based not only on technology and how that's affecting their day-to-day -day life, but then also like, um, 
the weird things that my wife and I are doing because we're very hardcore Gen X, right? So they're going to respond in a way where we're like, okay, like this is your life. You get to decide what you want. Like we're, you know, my wife and I, for example, treat our kids almost as peers, right? Where it's like, well, no, you like, you're going to get to decide what you want to do. We don't, we're not going to control you at all because we're swinging the pendulum back and forth. And so what do my kids do? My kids then turn around and they treat us as friends, right? As opposed to like the way, like my relationship was with my parents or my grandparents who were just like much more like parental. And so there's interesting, weird, like byproducts of this. Like you'll see things where, uh, Gen Z, for example, like they, they'll do this thing where like, they just walk into my closet and just like, take my clothes. Like they just wear my clothes all the time, whatever they feel like it, shoes, stuff like, because we're friends, right? Like, because that's the way I've always treated them. And they're kind of the first generation to see their parents as friends which is very different than all the previous generations. What's interesting about generations is that, and the reason we talk about generations and the reason we consider them in, in psychological research as well, it's not just a pop culture thing that we bitch about. Generations and defining them has a purpose in social science. And what's interesting, particularly about the generations that we have floating around at the minute is we have all had such different experiences. If you think about you know, I'm what they call a geriatric millennial, which I don't really appreciate, but I understand. It means I'm an old millennial. I was born between 1918, 1985. So in terms of growing up with technology, I was a lot less exposed than somebody who grew up, who was born in 1993, for example, who would also be classed as a millennial. But I think what's interesting is that when you are a, a millennial, you kind of do see it from both sides because I get the Gen X thing. I was a latchkey kid. I let myself in after work. After after work, I went down the mines. <laughs> Tough growing up in North Wales, wasn't it? It is, but no, I let myself in after after school and stuff. And and I can totally understand the, you know, the the sense of this is the world it is. You got to toughen up. You got to get on with it if you want to get anywhere. But I also really hated that as a millennial entering the workplace. So what I really like about Gen Z is that they are starting to change that conversation, changing the narrative about it. And I guess, you know, building on the changes that we've seen socially anyway in the last 50 years. And of course, one of the things that has really shaped Gen Z is their ability to carry around an insanely powerful computer in their pocket that's connected to the world's larger database and can give you an answer to any question at any time. So, of course, this shapes the way that they look at knowledge. And remember, this is all as well before pre-chat GPT or chat Jupiter. Gen Alpha won't just have the world's knowledge at their fingertips. They'll also have this advanced reasoning machine that can explain anything in any way that they like. So I'll ask Michael how he sees this changing the way the future generations approach work. So then the second part about Gen Z that's super interesting is because they have grown up in a time where everything, all knowledge, everything they want is instantly accessible, right? Like, so there's not only the technology of YouTube, right? Which is they've YouTubeified how they think about knowledge. They've also been in a situation where like items like Amazon, like Amazon of just like here in the US, like you press a button and it shows up the next day. Like it's just a freaking miracle, like compared to the way things were back in the 80s uh, when you had to get out the Sears catalog and hope it showed up, you know, someday. And so because of that, like Gen Z and my kids especially, they have no time for anything that isn't practical. Like it's either immediately useful and they understand why it's going to be useful to them or they have no time for it whatsoever. So like we struggle 
in the case of my kids, for example, to get them to understand why algebra matters. Like we have lots of talks about, okay, like you got to learn algebra. Why, why do I need to learn algebra? Well, you want to do these other things five to 10 years from now, like you need to know algebra right now in order to be on a path to do that. And like that, like mind shift for them is like incredibly difficult because of the impact of not only the way we're acting as parents, but secondarily the way technology has affected their generation so deeply. Generational differences are undeniable, but we should try to understand generational differences. We definitely should not stereotype our teams based on their age alone. I think that great leaders need to understand that people are not widgets, right? They're not uniform and not everybody wants to be treated the same way. So generational theory and individual intelligence, what's going on in people's lives, where they are in their life, what's happening with their family, what their dreams and hopes are. I think those are all part of it. Um, for sure, I encourage people to consider generational theory as a way to try to meet their employees where they are. Um, you know, Gen X, for example, wants to be treated very differently than say your prototypical millennial, right? Millennials, classically and stereotypically, they bring their whole selves to work. They're part of a tribe. They care about that kind of stuff much more than Gen X does because like you speak to me about a tribe, I'm going to be like, whatever, like, I don't care. Like, just show me. It's all about the results to me. And that's very prototypical Gen X. And so, yeah, I think that's a factor, but I just want to be clear. Like, I don't think you should stereotype people. I think you should just consider their generational aspects of them in terms of seeing them as an entire person, as a leader. And that's, that's what great leaders do, in my opinion. I think as a business owner, this is quite refreshing to hear because the temptation is to want to simplify everything down into like basic terms. So you were saying, oh, she's a millennial and therefore she wants this. He's a Gen Zer, therefore he wants that. People are people. They're not odometers. They, they're not just there to register the, the passage of time. One of the things that makes Michael such a respected leader and dealmaker is that he understands people. And he remembers the exact moment when it dawned on him that not everybody wanted the same thing. Yeah, so this individual was um, a frontline warehouse worker for us. And we go to him and we say, hey, would you like this opportunity? We'll train you. We'll do all these things for you. You can double your salary. Uh, it's an amazing opportunity. We'll pay you to learn. And so we go to him and we pitch him on this. And I'm like, well, yeah, this is an instant yes. And uh, this person said no. And I was like, what? Like, you don't want to do this? And, um, and it was at that moment, like I visited with him and he's like, no, no, I'm just happy just doing what I'm doing. Like, and, and to me, it was like, so confusing. I was like, well, why not? Like, well, you know, like this is, you know, my father worked in a warehouse. I'm going to work in a warehouse. Uh, I'm happy working in a warehouse. You know, I don't really want to take on the additional challenge. And, it, and that was just an opportunity for me to learn as a CEO. And as I started to get this idea around leadership that Everybody that you work with is different, with different perspectives. And just because I felt immediately ambitious, like, oh, yeah, I should totally go do that. And I would have taken that, that decision in a heartbeat. His psychology was one where he just had different set of values. He was happy just with the status quo. And ultimately, like, he was so sure of it, like, I couldn't really argue with it. I was really just like, okay, well, sounds good. We'll, we'll find somebody else. And, and ultimately, we did. Hear, hear. I think understanding people is one of the most difficult but most rewarding skills a manager can learn. I think, you know, if you really want to get into the psychology of people, it takes continual learning. You've got experts like Professor Sir Kerry Cooper and Dr. Ryan Sherman, who have been on the, on the podcast, that have dedicated their entire working lives to understanding what makes people 
want to work and they likely still don't know all all the answers. And that's because times change, values change, generational perspectives change. There is, however, one hack. And I'll be honest, Al, only the best of the best leaders know this. And I probably shouldn't tell you and I might get in trouble with the elders, but I'm willing to take the risk in the name of developing great managers. Are you ready for it, Al? Yes. If you want to understand what people want, Mm-hmm. What motivates them? What makes them tick at the deepest of psychological levels? Ask them. That's been kind of a recurring theme, I think, over the last few episodes, particularly when we talked about employee resource groups. You don't have to know everything about a different the way that someone lives their life, their lifestyle choices. And in fact, you probably won't know everything. So like you said, ask them and you're going to get some amazing results. Talking of managers and leaders, a lot of people think that a great manager is great at the technical work, at doing the work. Michael trained as a software engineer. So Al asked him if he misses building software. Nope. I mean, for two reasons. Um, I like to play games where I feel like I have an unfair advantage. And like, I know enough about coding to realize, you know, I don't have a strong enough memory for details. I don't have the pleasure of digging into details that like other people who are really good at programming, they have that kind of wiring uh, that I just don't have. And to me, it's it's not inspiring and it's not fun. I am much more inspired by working on bigger ideas, working on the psychology of people, helping other people be themselves and developing connections with them that I'm interested in developing and solving a puzzle on a computer screen. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. If you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. (laughs) If you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important for us to say that. Yeah, no, we copied. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. And I think what's so refreshing about this, and this isn't the first time I've heard this, is that most high achievers, particularly like an entrepreneurial setting, they don't end up doing what they studied at university, if they went to university at all. There's an old thing that's saying that if you can spell the word entrepreneur, you're not one. People who do well understand the psychology of people. It's not that they are the world's best coder. In fact, if you are the world's best coder, there's a chance you're not going to be a great manager. What's cool is that most successful people have learned on the job. Most successful leaders have learned on the job, which is great news for kids who don't like school. Look, here's what I've told my children. Um, There are things that you don't need to know in this planet. I remember growing up and they would, uh, when calculators first came out and like handwritten arithmetic wasn't important anymore. Uh, or as important as it used to be and that sort of thing, or spreadsheets came around or or algebra and all that kind of stuff. Like it started to where computers can do more and more stuff for you. But what I've told them, and I think this is, this is becoming more and more important, even as technology grows, 
is that you at school are not learning algebra. You're not learning biology. You're not learning chemistry. Like you're learning how to do two things. One is you're learning how to learn and two, you're learning how to think critically. And that process of learning how to learn, in my opinion, like is getting even more important year after year because technology keeps pushing forward. All these things that we're learning and using today, YouTube, Twitter, uh, AI, chat GPT, electric vehicles, like crypto, uh, cryptocurrency, like none of that stuff even existed or was even a theory when I was growing up and going to college. Like the computer programming languages they're using now are totally different. They didn't even exist. They didn't even thought of back then mobile phones, all that stuff is brand new. So all that stuff is accelerating. The process of technology evolving is accelerating. And to me, learning how to learn is even more important because you have to be able to get good at things very quickly these days. And so that's what I tell my kids. So far, they seem to be believing it, either that or it's us punishing them when they don't get good grades. But like, that's not, you know, that's what's happening here. You're learning how to learn. You're not learning how to memorize a particular thing, which I think is a good thing. Like we don't need the Chinese educational system where you're memorizing a bunch of stuff. Oh, ideally, the educational system and people's parents would do their job. Um, you know, I think if they don't do that, I think you have a situation where the ceiling for somebody in their future careers is very limited. You know, I think your job as a leader and an employer, at least in the U.S., is to help people become the best versions of themselves, but you, your job is not to create them, right? We didn't, you, you as an employer are not adopting them. You're not their parent. Um, so hopefully they've come in with those things, you know, being already prepared, because that's, in my, my opinion, a parent in the school system's job. But I think as a leader, your job is to help them grow those things as best you can, but you can't, it's just too much to ask a leader to try to create those things, you know, in a job situation, in my opinion. We need people who can think critically. We need people who can learn quickly because uh, that's what the world's demanding and it's, it's going to continue going that way. If Michael currently employs over a thousand people, then I suspect he's recruited at least five times that over the years. We wanted to know if he had any tips for finding and retaining great people. So much good stuff out there. You know, I think I'll give you something very specific. Uh, and it, it was just this idea that when you want to build anything great, you know, the key to that is to go and recruit people who are better than you. I think it's a real danger for a lot of people that you try to find somebody that's not going to be a threat to you as a manager. And I think that's a very a poor thing to do as a leader. You know, an old mentor of mine told me, he's like, look, you should go hire people better than you uh, for a number of reasons, one of which, like, they're more fun to work with. But number two, someday you're going to want to be promoted out of this job. And it's much easier for your bosses to promote you if they know there's somebody willing to step in and do the, your job at some point. So yeah, I would say specifically, as I think back on to younger me in my twenties, I had a mentor tell me that hire people better than me. And, uh, it's proven to pay off throughout the rest of my life. Sometimes there is a resistance to employing great people, which sounds counterintuitive, but a manager might worry that they're going to be better than they are. Well, ideally they, they should be. That's a really good point because I remember back to when I had my web agency and a guy came to me for as an intern job and I looked at his CV and I was like, oh my God, this guy is a genius. We used to do Google ads, so pay-per-click, we used to do that. I looked at him and I was thinking, he's not done pay-per-click, he's not done a Google ads, but I reckon he'll be much better than me. And I honestly, because I was a bit younger then, maybe in my like sort of mid to late 20s, I was a bit like, oh, do I really want to employ Richard? Do I? Because he's going to make me look stupid. I know he is. 
Turned out he did make me look stupid because he was an absolute natural <laughs> at it. And then went, and now I think he's running one of the largest pay-per-click companies, uh, organizations in the UK. Quite rightly so, because he was brilliant. And I learned that day that I shouldn't be using my ego as part of the recruitment process. Mm-mm. Michael totally agrees. And he says that you should definitely recruit the best you can. However, it's not plain sailing. You're going to have to be prepared to put the hours in. Yeah, I think people get confused with hiring somebody that is, you know, going to be difficult, right? Which is one of the things that happens when you hire high performing people is they need sometimes different and more care and feeding. Um, Not to say that I was like a high performing young person, but that's what my like reviews said when I had a job. And like, look, I was kind of needy in terms of stuff. I was producing a lot of things and that created more work for my manager. Uh, and fortunately, I had a situation where that gentleman, like he was just terrific to me because he was like grandfathered age. So nothing was going to threaten him in terms of his career because he was ready to retire in the next five years or so anyway. But I think a lot of people look at these high performing people and they think, oh, they're going to show up and they're going to be demanding of me. They're going to create a lot of work for me. They're going to be dramatic. They're going to make my job harder. I'm going to have to replace them because they're going to want to move on to something better. And if you're a lazy manager, sometimes it's just easier to take the easy path out. And that's kind of like life that way. Like a lot of people just like take the easy path out. I, I try not to. Let's not sugarcoat this. Being a great manager is really, really hard. Being a lazy manager is pretty easy. And you can probably tell being honest which one you are by just reflecting on that. How hard is your job right now as a manager? You know, as employees, we I guess the thing is we do learn a lot from both. We learn as much from the bad managers as we do from the good. And the other interesting thing about high performers is, you know, if you are wanting to recruit a high performer, a superstar into your organization, during that recruitment process, try to identify one thing. Try and identify if they are coachable. If a superstar is coachable, they won't make your job harder. If they're not, then progress with extreme, extreme caution. As a psychologist, I wanted Al to dig deeper into why Michael thought he's made the choices in life that he has. There is some stuff that happened in my childhood that explain why I'm super, uh, super in touch with all the little nuances and all the the psychology of people. Um, so, I mean, it's not really a secret. Like I had a pretty crappy high school experience uh, here. We moved when I was 12 and I moved from, I, th- I think, a pretty you know standard American uh, set up in terms of schooling and social environment to one that was at the time, and I think still to some extent is, you know, a very high pressure, you know, schooling area. And I didn't fit in super well. And to eventually get to a point where I figured out how to navigate that, being a bit of an odd person, I mean, that's just the other thing I've gotten totally comfortable with. Like I'm an odd person. I'm I'm comfortable in my skin now. But back then I had to start to learn how to read the tea leaves and start to get psycho- psychological about understanding what people's motivations were. And growing up here in Texas also is a place where people are the opposite of being very direct. Um, not as much as the the Brits like to not be direct, but like we're kind of in the same vein. And, uh, you know, it took a lot of me developing those skills over time. And then I think I just like they were survival skills at the beginning. And today I just find it fascinating. Like I just love trying to understand somebody's motivations, trying to understand what they're trying to do. Like it's a puzzle to be figured out for me. And people are just fascinating, complex puzzles. Uh, to go around. So yeah, that's my answer for it. Like, yeah, it all ties back to childhood, (laughs) which which is true. 
Uh, but today, like, yeah, I just, it's so fascinating to me. I love trying to figure out what people are thinking and why they're thinking it. If you listen to the full interview, you could, you'll hear me actually totally empathizing this because I was a fucking really weird kid. <laughs> well, I went, I'm going to a grammar school for my sixth form, which if from the US, those words might just totally confuse you. I don't know what the equivalent in the US is, but Posh basically <laughs> at 16, I went to a normal <laughs> school. And then at 16, I went to my last two years study uh, before university at a what's called a grammar school. I went probably three, four days sometimes without talking to any single person from the moment I left the house to the moment I got back to the house. I was like Michael. I did not fit in. But this made me a better adult, I think, because I was, I had something to prove. I remember I was a pub manager and I used to sit back and go, right, okay, we're going to do 80,000 pounds this week. This is like 20, 20, 30 years ago. 80,000 pounds this week. And I have been the one who's put this together. Look at all these people having a great time. I put it together. That kind of like that ego wouldn't have been there if I'd had an ego as a child. So I want to know, should we allow our children to face adversity or will adversity actually make them a better adult? I think my wife and I strongly believe that if you live a childhood, a child, a childhood without struggle, without setbacks, without conflict, uh, you're not, you're, you're, you're just delaying going through and dealing with those things until you're an adult. And you see these people that I, you know, unfortunately, like they grew up without constraints. They grew up without any setbacks. Their parents protected them. And to me, like they turn out to be not very fulfilled adults. Like they don't have direction and mom and dad are still in there helicoptering on them. So, you know, my wife and I very much agree that our objective as parents is to create amazing, well-adjusted adults ready to go out and do whatever they want in the world and not to create the absolute best childhood for a child. I think that's a huge mistake. I see it on Twitter all the time. People are like, my child is going to have the best childhood ever. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like your job is to create an amazing adult as an apparent, as a parent, not to provide the most like glamorous, beautiful, pain-free childhood possible. So whenever I see now, like my child going through struggles, like my job is to coach them and help them and, and figure out how to deal with these things now, rather than trying to do that when they're 25, because now is the time when they can go through those struggles. And it's, if it was like me uh, being in a position where I didn't get along well with people in high school and I still am kind of motivated by that, you know, like for full transparency or if it's other things going on, failing a class or any that kind of stuff. Um, do I feel empathy for my kid? Absolutely. Do I know it's necessary for them to go through that to be amazing, well-adjusted, successful adults? Absolutely. So it's both to answer your question specifically. We couldn't have someone like Michael on the podcast without asking him about the future of work. He's an experienced leader and business owner. He's bought companies, sold companies, built companies, and now is an investor in companies. He's seen a huge shift from the workplace banter in the 90s to now people being afraid perhaps to say anything for fear of upsetting someone. Al asked him where he thought the balance was. Well, I think I think America is is fundamentally a place that I, I kind of think about it as uh, a feedback desert. That's, that's a phrase I've been trying to use, but it's just this idea that like, if you go to a real, if you go to a party or you go to a workplace here in the U S like everybody is so terrified of insulting the other person that they never really talk about anything that's real. And uh, this was something that really only, you know, my eyes opened up to it visiting other countries, going to France or Spain or Mexico and seeing the way people talk there and being much less worried about offending the other person. 
you know, that opened my eyes to it here in the US. And I think, look, I think there's an upside to us trying to be kind all the time. Like that's one of the things I love about certain countries. Like I love kindness and visible kindness to other people. So I love that aspect of America. But the downside of it is like we've become so intentionally kind and so worried about being unkind that we never take the next step to often tell people what we truly think or what the true situation is. Um, and I have, for example, like one of my friends who is a CEO of a company, um, right now she has a leadership challenge because her people are all terrified to tell her the truth about stuff. And they only gather their courage and tell her later, you know, after they can't clean up a mess and they have to absolutely tell her. And I think all of that ends up costing us. You know, it, I, think, I think we would do better um, to try to stay kind. But like, if you're at, we're at this end of the spectrum right now, where we're just like so kind that you can't really say anything without fear of like pissing somebody off or offending even somebody for the slightest thing. And I think everybody would be a ton more happier if we just brought it down a couple notches in the United States, like just stop being so thick skinned or thin skinned all the time. I think it would be huge for most people's happiness and workplace efficiency too. And Michael was really balanced about that idea. And he was kind of torn because we did, we did back and forth a little bit on that. And he was, he was explaining that we can't go back to how we were, where there was essentially bullying. But at the same time, we've got to be careful we don't get to the very other end of the spectrum. So quite a balanced answer, I think, there. Yeah, and I think as well, it's, you know, it's if you're if you're having a conversation with someone related to performance, then maybe some, you know, more direct conversation is, is needed. If you're chatting about what somebody did for over the weekend and you're bantering about the fact they did something that you find amusing, then I don't I don't see the place for it. Context is everything as well, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and over 30 years of investing in companies, building companies, buying companies, as Leanne said, I had to ask him, where does he see the future of this? I mean, you know, regular listeners know that we are both very bullish on AI. Uh, we use ChatGPT extensively. Um, it's just recently, uh, there looks like an app store for ChatGPT being released yesterday. That's going to be really interesting. So I think the future is rosy, but I want to see if Michael agreed. Yeah. So I think large language models are really interesting because they're going to do the same parallel as what the spreadsheet did in terms of like work, right? It creates a situation where we're going to take existing employees and we're going to make them a lot more effective. It's also turning into like its own new programming language, akin to what people are doing in Microsoft Excel. There's people who are becoming incredibly good at writing these prompts and you're seeing them, they're pages long and then the LLM produces stuff on the other end. So there's lots of talk about it killing jobs. I think it's not killing existing people's work. It's just making the people that are here much more effective. Now, does that mean that because they're more effective, companies won't need to hire more people in the future? Absolutely. But it's also a situation where I don't think people should be scared that some large language model is going to come in and take their job tomorrow. Because frankly, it's not going to do it any more than the, the calculator did or the computer did or the spreadsheet did or the mobile phone did. Like these are just going to make the existing humans that we have much more efficient, the company's more efficient. And when all that happens, actually, the employees get paid more and they're happier. And so I think it's a net good thing, you know, just like almost every single other technological advance we've done, uh, it makes people's lives better. And, and so I'm very optimistic about them. And I think all the scare tactics are really kind of overblown. And of course, we had to ask Michael about the argument, the debate of 2023. Where does Michael stand on remote versus hybrid versus in-office working? 
Uh, it totally depends upon the company's situation and the company you want to build. I think all these people that are telling you that remote work is the only way to go or hybrid's the only way to go or in-office is the only way to go. I think, number one, it's somewhat a stylistic choice, but then it's also one where it depends upon what the situation is. If you're doing a small startup and it's a lot of connectivity amongst the people is really important, you need to be in the office together, but it's not the only way. And so I think, you know, every time I see the argument, I'm like, yeah, they all have their place. And I think just the best thing about remote work is it has the potential to, you know, to raise the tide for all boats, right? These opportunities that potentially weren't possible before remote work just makes them possible. And so uh, I'm very bullish on it. I love remote work, but I also love hybrid work and I love in-office work and I do them all and my companies do them all just depending upon what's best for the company. So I think what Michael's saying there is it depends, which is an answer I very much appreciate. You know, it's, it's also what every, pretty much every single one of our experts has said when they've been asked about remote versus hybrid versus in office. It really does depend. You know, if you think back to our four day work week episodes, even we had the world expert on the four day week work who ran the global pilot, Joe O'Connor. And he was the first to say that, you know, these kinds of things like the four day work week will work for some organizations and not for others. And I think that's true of remote versus hybrid versus in-office working. It depends on the kind of work you do. It depends on the amount of collaboration or deep thinking that your work requires. What is for sure is that having your team work from the office won't make you a better manager. So leaders, if you are feeling like you are losing control, losing influence, perhaps losing some sense of camaraderie in your culture, maybe focus on improving your competence rather than changing your context. The key thing is to listen and make it easy for your team to communicate their thoughts and choices to you. It really isn't rocket science when we boil it down. Ask people what they want. Within the constraints you have, try and give it to them. Kimberly also mentioned this from First Direct a few weeks ago, that one of the greatest strengths of the bank was to be able to go direct to the CEO with any concerns and any feedback and the CEO would listen. And that perhaps, Al, is rule two of Great Manager Club. Be approachable. I love it. Great Manager Club. I like that. We're gonna, oh, I'm... oh, uh-oh. Oh, no, there's a problem when you're married to an entrepreneur. You can't just say shit like that because next week there's going to be a freaking PowerPoint and probably a <laughs> website up. I'm just thinking there must be a play on words with a fight club. Fight club. So I'm I'm going to be, me and ChatGPT, we're going to chat about that <laughs> later on over a small gin and tonic. If you're not following Michael on Twitter, just search for at Girdley. You can see how long he's been on Twitter because of his handle. He's, he's got like a six letter handle. You can go and find him there at Girdley. You can go to at, you can go to girdley.com. Uh, also, I believe he's got a new YouTube channel called Girdley World. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. He also has a newsletter, which you definitely subscribe to. And if you're interested in joining a group of like-minded peers who are turning over somewhere between half a million and five million dollars, Michael's created something that might just tickle your pickle. ScalePath is a business that we incubated this year. It's a CEO peer group uh, that we're super proud of for companies uh, anywhere in the U.S. or beyond that want to scale past $5 million in revenue. It's for folks that aren't ready for Vistage and YPO or EO or any of the in-person networks. Uh, it's a great virtual opportunity for them. So uh, we're building out a really special thing. We're over 100 members and would love for anybody that's a small business person that wants to scale to give it a shot. So that is it for this week on the podcast a huge thank you to michael girdley for sharing his insights experiences and phenomenal work um a pretty nice addition to our little founder series i think they're out yeah definitely and i'll be contacting other people on twitter to ask them if they'll be on the show so 
if you're kind of a big cheese on Twitter, look out. I'm going to be sliding into your DMs, as the Gen Z say. Mm -hmm. If you are a Brie or a Camembert, expect I'll to get in touch very, very soon. Next week. Next week's exciting, actually. I'm excited about next week, Al. Who have we got? Yes, next week is a sport, special sports and leadership edition. We have some very cool people on next week. I'm not going to say, I'm going to do a little teaser here. So we have a former Premier League footballer. Can I get an order all, please? Ooh. We have a current England rugby player. Oh. Ooh. And we also have a world record-breaking yacht sailor uh, from the UK. It's it's quite the lineup. It really is. So if you're not subscribed, pull out your phone now, click subscribe, and uh, also just let us know, give us some feedback. We're on. We're you know you know by now. We're on LinkedIn. Search for Truth Lies and Work. You'll see one of us popping up and talking. And just tell us what you think about the uh, about the episode. If not left a review. Do it. Go and give us five stars and tell us how amazing we are, please, because we're that needy. We really are. You are. Bye for now. Bye. I like my pickle tickled. <laughs> <laughs> That's going in the outtakes. You're quite good with the left-hand trackpad, aren't you? I have a hand and I can use it to track. It took me a couple of weeks to train myself to use the left hand. It says more about said. you than it does about me. <laughs> oh, this is all woke rubbish. But at the same time, he wasn't saying, let's go back to how we were in the 90s where you could just take the mickey out of someone who's only got one leg. You know, it's that kind of... I'm going to do that again. <laughs> where that came from. I don't know what they do. That's going in the outtakes too. <laughs> I don't know what they do.